Legal discussion on tip today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mail on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors joins me now. Good morning to you, John. Good morning. I'm not sure it is very good, is it? <laughs> My God. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty pretty damp out there, to say the yeah, very least, indeed. Listen, you're going to talk to us today about, uh, well, something that we discussed on the programme some time ago, in fact, which mm. is that private member's bill uh, seeking to allow people with terminal illness to be helped to end their own lives. It's the Dying with Dignity bill, and it was put forward by um, uh, Deputy Gino Kenny, uh, how how do you feel about that, John? First of all, before we get into yeah. the nitty gritty of it. Um, well, I suppose my initial reaction is that it has kind of been the subject matter of a lot of discussion. Fun, you know, it's like it's when these things. I wasn't actually aware of it, um, and uh, until your producer said it to me, and I was actually in the middle of reading a Supreme Court judgment which is on similar kind of lines insofar as it deals with something that has come up quite a lot over the last number of years, and that is the question of whether or not the state can intervene and override the decision of a parent in terms of the kind of care that you might give your child. Mm. And this is something, and also if you think of the the Fleming case, which is the case that I think they say kind of you know, yes. I want to say drove this, but instigated the uh, private member bill to put this before uh, the houses. And in the Fleming case, it was down to the question of whether or not, as an adult, she could make the decision, you know, to end her life. Mm-hmm. And she went to the Supreme Court and the European Court on it. And, you know, the Supreme Court judgment that I was reading was down to not, <clears throat> well, it was. It's that very delicate difference which they were arguing there isn't a difference in, i.e., you know, taking a positive act of ending somebody's life or taking a more neutral approach to it and not prescribing or taking an active part in giving them certain treatment options. But that that might mean, prolong their life, is that it? Exactly. Yeah. Or mm. that might end their life insofar as if they don't if you don't administer those mm. options yes. then the person's life will inevitably end. So you know, and the argument in that case was what's the difference between doing something positive and and or not doing anything at all and the the result is the same. And the Supreme Court was grappling with that and has grappled with that for a long time. Mm. And the Supreme Court has kind of said uh, that it's a matter for legislation. And suddenly here we have a piece of legislation uh, that is literally dealing with it as, as bluntly as putting in a mechanism whereby you can, in fact, uh, have a, a situation where you can end your life Hmm. If you're in a position to make that decision, if you sign a declaration, and if you get uh, medical backup to the effect that your life is going to end anyway, and it's just a question of um, deciding to end it in a way that's a deliberate act as opposed to you know allowing things to run their course. So the big I mean, difficulty my... there, I suppose, John, though, is that there would be adequate safeguards within that legislation to to cover all eventualities, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but I suppose the question that you asked me was, what was my initial reaction? Mm. I suppose my, my initial reaction was probably, 
you know, you'll, you'll always react two ways on this. You can either react on the basis of the right to life argument or you can on the right to choice argument, which is an argument that we as a, as a nation have dealt with in many different concepts over the last number of years. And it, there are there are two opposing kind of views of it. And when I say views, there are two different ways of looking at it. And I suppose my end kind of decision on it or kind of take on it was that I would like to see a considerable amount more debate about it mm. because it's like everything else, Fran. We've talked on and off over the last dare I say, five years now coming mm-hmm. into six years yeah. about the Assisted Decision-Making Capacity Act. Mm. And that act was brought in in 2015. And that act has a huge amount of mechanisms in it to deal with helping people to make decisions, to give them the autonomy uh, and the respect that they are entitled to to make those decisions, but to put in a whole raft of mechanisms that are available to them. So I suppose my kind of one of my immediate reactions was wouldn't wouldn't it be, if you like, very important that you would activate or action all of the backup support systems that are available to people uh, if you are going to bring this piece of legislation in, and you know that that was my first reaction because you know the decision making act has been on the statute books for six years, and we still don't and can't do assisted decision making uh, mechanisms. So we can't appoint a co decision maker. You can't do a document that appoints a co decision maker. They set up a whole mechanism to oversee the whole enduring power of attorney situation. They set up a whole mechanism to review wards, wardship in courts. They set up a whole mechanism whereby they took away from, if you like, the strict legal approach to it and they appointed a kind of a central agency mm. that would make sure that there are no abuses, that would make sure that there are proper protocols, that would make sure that there are proper, you know, like in every walk of life now, you've got kind of procedures as to how you do things. I mean, and they've put in a huge amount of work over the last five mm. or six years in terms of HSC. But has it been implemented, John? No, but that's the point. Exactly. Absolutely, it hasn't been implemented. So, and the interesting thing about it is, I'm I'm assuming that this bill was got from other jurisdictions and that they've used the model in other jurisdictions to put this before the statute. And what I was surprised about, maybe not surprised, it's probably too strong a word, is that there there isn't the debate. I mean, they've literally fast-tracked it almost now. Mm. Fast-tracked, but you know what I mean. It has. It's got fairly quickly to the committee stage, and you re and people like you know the various hospice groups and that have said there needs to be discussion about this because there are two potential downsides to it, and the potential downsides to it um, are that you could have an abuse situation here and you need to make sure that you safeguard against that. But the other downside, as well as the mechanisms not being available to assist people in making decisions, is the fact that, you know, the reality of this is that when you're looking at a situation like the Supreme Court was looking at in that young lad's case uh, that was before the court about about three months ago, uh, you know, the child was only 
seven or eight had a very traumatic accident is basically in a really serious state that they could die at any stage. But the, the, the question was, you know, where you've got parts of care that is keeping somebody in a situation where, if you like, they're not in acute pain, where, you know, their dignity has been respected. You know, if if you're looking at that situation as a comparison to ending somebody's life, so you're looking at the two situations. And I mean, again, it's a very hard for people not to personalise this insofar as, you know, we all think of our own personal circumstances. I mean, my parents are 90 and 90, 94 and mm. 90. Mm. And, you know, they get to an end-of-life situation and they're, thanks for the God, very comfortable and, you know, they're very contented in themselves. And, they're quite, you know, they're in, they're there at the end of life insofar as I'm hoping they get another 10 years or so, but there you go. Uh, but they're in a very comfortable position. What about the situation where... This, where we don't have, people don't have that. In other words, they don't have, there aren't the mechanisms there to provide the proper care for people. And then you're in a situation where you're offering an end of life where the proper care is. So they're, they're, all the, they're all the mechanisms. And I mean, the overall question, I suppose, that you ask yourself is, you know, on a personal level, do you, would you agree that, that there should be uh, a dying with dignity legislation? Um, should it be in, on the statute books? I think that's a personal decision as to whether you do or whether you don't. And, you know, the argument is, you know, on which side of the fence are you? Are you on? And it doesn't have to be a side of the fence either because, you know, as you know, in life, nothing is black and white. It's not mm-hmm. as simple as that. But it's a question of you're going to have people that are going to have very strong views on... Of course, know, yeah. There, there's a couple of things that I'd love your opinion on. Two, two things bother me particularly uh, about it. And that is that somebody might feel obliged to go down that road because they might feel that they're being a nuisance to to the the relatives. And the other thing that occurs to me, John, is you've often, and you've drummed it into me about enduring power of attorney, but it would concern me that part of the attorneyship would involve making that decision for somebody else down the road at some point. Yeah, but I don't think that under the legislation that an attorney could make that decision. I think this is a decision uh, that would have to be made by the person themselves. I think the legislation will cover that. But if but instruction I mean, was, was, was left to the person who has power of attorney that this is what the patient would want. Yeah, but you see, often do you remember we talked about uh, the kind of the set of things, your will, your enduring power of attorney, your advanced health care directive. Your advanced health care directive is the really key document in this whole uh, equation because, you know, when you're looking at, uh, as we get older, you know, as our health deteriorates, um, and you look at a situation where people are, are, are you know, needing assistance, etc., you know, drug assistance, etc., etc., and I often say to myself when I come back from the chemist with my parents' two bags of drugs, I said to him uh, he, he could nearly start a, a whole sale of drugs with the amount of drugs. But it's quite incredible how advanced that medicine has become and how people can actually live with a huge amount of assistance, you know, drug assistance by drugs, which is a great modern mm. uh, improvement. But to come back to your point, and I think it's a very interesting one for discussion and that is that the amount of times uh, and I hope my 
mother who's listening to this, but the amount of times that, you know, uh, an elderly person that you're minding might say to you, oh, look, I'm a terrible nuisance and I'm in a situation and I'm, I'm a terrible burden to you. Yeah, and yeah. yes, you're absolutely right that the key, absolute key to this is that, you know, is there a sufficient cooling off period yeah, under the yeah. Act? I mean, there's a 14-day cooling off period. Is that enough? Is the definition of, you know, the person the person has actually a clear and settled intent, is that correct? I mean, and for anybody out there who's dealt, you know, who's minded uh, somebody in a situation like, you know, in my case where you're talking about elderly parents, you'll know that there'll be good days and bad days, yeah, right? yeah. good weeks and bad weeks. And the reason that the... Assisted Decision Making Capacity Act, which is quite a mouthful, uh, and the reason that I would be very strong about implementing that legislation, and that's where I'd be very vocal, is that because that has built-in mechanisms to deal with the question of somebody's capacity to make a decision, and it's it's based on the whole concept of functional capacity. So, in other words, you're not just talking about, you know, can they tell you who the president is? Can they tell you what day of the week it mm. is? Mm. You know, and can they do that today and tomorrow and the next day? The question is, are they able to make the particular decision taken into account all of the circumstances? And that legislation has a really very detailed way of dealing with capacity. But not only that, but they have spent the last five years, the HSC and various other bodies that are involved in this very uh, you know, difficult and sensitive area, they have got codes of practice, they've got mechanisms to deal with it. So the question that I have here is that on this piece of legislation that's dealing with something so critical, I mean, it is such an important um, thing to you know, legislate and protect and ensure that it's right, have they built in and have they ensured that there is conformity between this and that piece of legislation that mm. they brought in 2015? And, and Gene, Gene O'Kenny, on this programme, in fact, John, he said that he felt that, you know, that there were flaws in the legislation that had to be teased out yet all, all the more reason uh, for your point, which is that for something that is flawed even by their own admission, they're 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 pushing it fairly quickly. Oh yeah, but I mean, you know, the whole thing. The other, the other interesting thing about it, and you know, I use that word quite a lot, and I don't mean it in the sense of curiosity. I mean, the, t- the point here is that, you know, there is a an established system dealing with things like enduring powers of attorney. And just to remind your listeners, I mean, enduring power of attorney is effectively where I'm in full state of health. Very, very well. I think I am, <laughs> and I'm in a position to nominate people. That if I suddenly am not able to look after myself, they'll step in and do it for me. So they're my attorneys. Mm. So the reality of that is that you're looking at a situation where you have a mechanism to do that, and a mechanism. But there's an established checklist of safeguards to ensure that that's done correctly. Yeah. And one of the safeguards about that is that. You know, it's a two-step approach. You, you, Fran, go out and 
me and say, look, I want to do the dual power attorney. You do it. You appoint people that are going to be your attorneys and then you go about your business, you run your show, etc., etc. And then there comes a point at some stage in the future that you lack, that you, you're, you may lack capacity. Mm. Now, the point is that there is an established mechanism in there to establish do you, do you or did you or do you or are, are you lacking capacity? And there's a mechanism to review it and there's a mechanism to check it and there's a mechanism to challenge it if somebody thinks that it's not correct. And that mechanism is already there. So you ask the question, why not put all the legislation to do with this area into the one you know, why go with a separate bill here? Why not put this in and make it part of the overall mix of making your will, doing your interior power of attorney, doing your advanced health care directive, and then doing and being in a position that if you do decide that you're going to deal with the issue of end of life and that you are going to actually end your life because you have got a terminal illness, that in those circumstances that there is a mechanism that mirrors the existing mechanism to, to do that and have the various safeguards. So, yeah, I would I'd be very, very Se- strong. Several that. points, John, about, you know, mental illness here. Now, you're, I'm sure your reading of the bill was more in-depth than mine, but my, my assumption on that is that people with mental health, is, it doesn't cover mental health illnesses. In other words, somebody who's profoundly depressed could not choose to 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 have their life ended, if you know what I mean. Well, you see, the, the, the thing about it is that that's down to the question of assessing capacity. Mm. And it's down to the question of not having a very broad brush uh, approach to the assessment of capacity. So I would respectfully say to you that just because somebody suffers from long-term depression, for example, does that mean that they can't make this decision? Does it mean that somebody who has dementia, who may have lucid moments, can't during those lucid moments make that decision? Does it mean that somebody has bipolar, can't make that decision, and is being treated for it, can't make that decision? I mean, the question, and, and you know, you've, you've absolutely nailed this in the sense that it's the assessment of capacity mm. that is the absolutely critical factor in this. And if you look at what they've tried to do in the bill, They've tried to they've tried to deal with it in so far, and to be fair, they have tried to deal with it because they've said that a person can lack, you know, a person actually will lack capacity if they're unable to understand the information relevant to the decision, to retain the information, to use the information in a way that they can process it, etc., etc., etc. So they have tried to set out a mechanism for doing it. My only question and not criticism but my only question is have they done it sufficiently mm. to to provide the safeguards that are necessary and therein I think lies lies my ultimate kind of conclusion when I when I yeah. thought this you need uh, to it needs to be looked out it needs to be fleshed out and, and, and again I'm going at some of the text uh, that came into us uh, when we discussed it a lot of people figuring are we on a slippery slope? From from this legislation, then I mean, is it only a matter of time before other things are added to it? And uh, you know, is, would that be a concern of yours that once you put well, something like this in place, that that's a danger? Well, that, that's a very long-standing argument, uh, that, uh, a long-standing view of people, and it's a real, realistic. Uh, fear that people can have. I mean, we had it with divorce, we had it with abortion. 
uh, you know, we had it with the situation where, you know, the people would say, like, when divorce was introduced to the country, everybody would be divorced and we'd have a, an epidemic of divorce. But the reality of it is you don't know until such time as you implement these things whether they are or whether they're not. It's, it's, it's a very standard stock mm. response by the legal system to people trying to introduce new areas of claim. For example, they say, oh, if we allow this one, it'll start a whole, what they call, they use the word, not slippery slope, because they're, you know, they're churches, so they're confused. <laughs> yes. like so yes. they use things like open the floodgates. Right. So, yes. you know, so it's the, it's the same, exactly the same thinking. And I mean, and the interesting thing about this is that um, when you're looking at any area like this that is so personal and so sensitive for people, I mean, it is very difficult, you know, to look at it objectively. Uh, and the problem is, is there such a thing as an objective look at something? Because in that case, in the Supreme Court, Supreme Court were at... Uh, went to great length to say, well, you know, you can't apply your... Judges can't apply their own personal views Mm. on whether or not treatment should or should not be offered. And, but the reality of it is, is it possible to do something like that when you're looking at this? And then you have the whole area of that, and again, this is not in any way uh, judging this situation, but you have the whole area here that in enduring powers of attorney, you have the medical profession and the legal profession involved. And in this area, you have the medical profession full stop involved. So there's, there is protections within it in that you have to get to medical, you know, you have to get the declaration signed plus by the medical person supporting it plus another medical person supporting it. But the question is, should you have another mechanism to deal with it as well? Should you have an override? Should you have a position where and a family member can actually make an application to, like, under the capacity legislation that we're talking about, 2015, you can actually go to the court to deal with it, or should you be able to go to a registrar to deal with it? Should what, 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 the what, wouldn't that system? be possible anyway that it could be challenged, John? Surely, well, it can like be, any other piece of legislation. Oh, yeah, but not, not so much that the legislation can be challenged, but the actual decision that's been made right, to right. terminate pa- the part, life. Part of the safeguards you, you're saying that, that exactly. should be built in. So yeah. the, exactly, precisely. That's Very interesting. Right. It's a conversation that will go on and on, uh, that's for sure. Okay. John, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for coming Thank on with us Thank you, Thank, Thank you, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye to you now. That's uh, John Lynch there, Lynch Solicitors, with a conversation that is a difficult one, uh, for sure. Somebody else made the point to me. A couple of weeks ago when we were discussing this, that maybe um, we should be looking at palliative care and, uh, you know, uh, making it more readily available and uh, more efficient and all of that sort of thing. And maybe that um, would be helpful to people uh, as well. How do you feel about that? 83 Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie